Ibsita is a pop star and behavioural scientist, having millions of people idolise you and sing along to every word. 230 million views on YouTube and over half a billion streams. Sounds like a pretty dream life in your early 20s, but it's not always been so straightforward. And I kind of went into depression a little bit in that time because I just felt worthless, like I didn't know if I was getting cast in anything. I didn't know if I would make it. In the latest episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Ipsita joins me to discuss her music, mental health and behavioural science. Ipsita, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you for having me. And so talk to us about the, the let's start with the pop star bit, because that's what you're obviously most known for. Mm. How did you become a pop star? It just kind of unfurled in a very uncanny way. I just started uploading mashups of Hindi and English songs on my YouTube channel. Yeah, um, I've always been a singer and we'll get to that, I guess, in a minute. But I was raised with this sort of mentality that you can't be an artist at, for a living. Mm. My mom's a doctor, my dad's in the civil service, like very academic background. Yeah. Um, so it was always, it's good that you can sing, dance and act and keep doing that for fun as a hobby, but do something like meaningful with your life. <laughs> um, so it just kind of came about as... I enjoyed singing and I just wanted to put it out there. Um, yeah. And over, I think, two years, one of the mashups went viral. It got picked up by this Indian rapper whose team contacted me and asked me to come and audition for a song, yeah. which was such a foreign concept to me. I was like, oh, wait, you auditioned to like be a singer because yeah. <laughs> that's not what you typically hear, but it is quite common in India. Um, so I went and I think I was one of many girls who sung the song, um, they, they essentially sent me like a verse and chorus, said, learn it, come and perform it. Um, they recorded it and then I didn't hear back for quite a few, I think months, like three or four yeah. months. So I th just assumed I hadn't gotten it. Um, this was while I was still in my undergrad, by the way. Yeah, um, and that was it, and your undergrad was at Yale? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of forgot about it, but then just as I was graduating, I think it was my last semester, they said, you've been locked, um, you'll be the playback singer. And then I was like, wait, can I be in the video as well? <laughs> um, and then there was that whole other conversation that, oh, okay, she wants to feature in it. And yeah, um, yeah, I guess not to get really heavy in the beginning, but it was essentially like, okay, you're going to have to lose weight and look like a model if you, if you want to be in the video because you don't look like one right now. I was about 15 kilograms heavier than I am right now. Okay. So that was a lot of like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to have to really focus on this. So I graduated, I took a year off, um, moved back to India and kind of just worked on myself and um, got in shape and had to learn hip hop because yeah. the, I don't know if you've seen the video, but it's a lot of um, yeah. hip hop dancing. So yeah, I went into classes for that and then COVID happened and lots of delays, but eventually it released. And that was kind of the beginning of my like professional music journey. It went from just being a cover artist or just someone who does it for fun to then being launched in the Indian music industry. So it was a massive step and I got really lucky. So. You're doing the undergrads, you sort of, you know, almost file this thing as a like long shot and it kind of comes off. And then you think, okay, so I'm going to take a, a year off hmm. to like properly have a crack at this. And like you say, like there's some quite, you know, it's, you've got to learn some skills in hip hop as well, but you've also got to like focus on your looks and so yeah. on. Like, how did your parents kind of respond to that? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I mentioned that the upbringing was very, much centered around academics and yeah. like being a smart kid. Um, from that, they just did a full 180. <laughs> and they were the ones who were like, 
take the gap year. This is not something you can avoid. Like it's fallen into your lap. Yeah. This you could make a career out of it. You know, you're talented. Give it a shot. Um, and so they really and they were really lovely. They're like, we'll support you. Don't worry about like of having a job or you know yeah. whatever because they lived in India. Um, so it definitely went from like my, my mindset being I'm um, the next step for me is masters and PhD and I'm going to be an academic in behavioral economics mm. to then being like okay hold on a second let's put it all on pause. I had still like gotten into LSE and another place UPenn I applied for my masters um, in two places. So behavioral science itself is also a relatively new and like yeah, growing yeah. field. Um, that's where my academic passion was. So I was double majoring in economics and psychology at Yale while performing in like six musicals and two or three dance shows and like acting gigs, um, you know, because that that's basically why I wanted to go to Yale, which is to be academic, but also be a performing artist. And that's known, Yale is one of, you know, the best yeah. um, universities you can go to if you are a performer. Um, they have an excellent, because the Yale School of Drama is next to Juilliard, um, if you want to train to be a professional. Okay. Yeah. So that was part of the part of the logic. Though. Part of the yeah. logic. Yeah, I was always looking for that outlet because it was such a central identity of mine. Even getting into these colleges, I, I wrote about being a performer um, in some of my essays, and it obviously shone through. Like all my extracurriculars were, you know, apart from debate and student council, it was acting, dancing, and singing. Um, yeah. And these universities in the U.S. look at that, like they want people who are well-rounded. Um, so yeah, it was yeah, always people with an extra bit of flair and whatever. Yeah, because everyone has a 4.0 GPA, which is like distinction equivalent, you know, yeah, everyone like all the candidates <laughs> applying have the same grades, which is the best grades. And, you know, um, they're super academic. So then what how do you add that edge? Either someone's found a cure for cancer or, <laughs> or you're like a secret pop star or I don't know, you have something else going for you. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just and decided why did you pick economics and psychology um, Two fascinating fields, right? Yeah, yeah, I got introduced to it by my dad. He gifted me this book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. You've heard of it. You're smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he won the Nobel Prize for it. Um, so, well, for the work cited in the book, to be clear. Um, yeah, my dad is an avid reader, and so yeah. was I. He was always giving me books. We've done this cute thing where we like, I'm always buying him physics books, and he's buying me books that he thinks I will enjoy. Yeah. So he was reading it, and he was like, this is kind of fascinating. You might like it, because I displayed interest in like human behavior or just just hum the human mind in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I was in the 10th grade when he gave me that book. Um, and in India, you have to pick a stream in your 11th and 12th grade. Yeah. Um, so I, my high school was in New Delhi. So you have to pick science, commerce, or humanities. Those are the three streams. Um, science will include physics, biology, chemistry. Um, humanities is like political science, um, you know, psychology, geography, history. Um, and then commerce is business and finance and accounting. So what, yeah. just put that into the British equivalent then. So grade 11, what grade's that? What age is that? Um, so 11 is the penultimate year of high school. So 16, 17. Basically. Yeah. So, so one of the three things that you pick there is, is commerce. That's quite interesting. Like one of the three that you can pick is commerce. Yeah, in India. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, but then... We don't have that here really at all, like... You can pick whatever, right? You yeah, yeah, your... totally. Yeah, yeah. You can pick whatever, but business is not business is not something that's really on the curriculum. Sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's because a lot of families in India like have have been in business and yeah. are industrialists, and it's just a big stream. There is a there's a reason why they call it a stream. It's because like 
first of all, the population is so big, you kind of funnel the population into like, okay, which domain do you want to go into, right? Some people are very clear because they've been raised by businessmen and and it's just the precedent that, of course, I'll work for my family's business. And what does the commerce stream involve then? It's like finance, accounting, economics, math. Um, Again, in like English medium schools in India, which I went to an English medium school, which means that your entire syllabus and curriculum is held in English, conducted in English. Um, you have to pick English as one of your five subjects. And then whatever other four you pick kind of puts you in a stream. So what I did is I ended up starting in science. So I had math, chemistry, physics, English, and economics. Um, They did this thing where economics could be part of science or humanities or commerce. They kind of shuffled it around. Um, But then I dropped physics, which was again like... No one had done that in, in our in the history of the school because it was not allowed. Yeah. But I took a liking to behavioral economics g- given like reading this book and then some others that I got into um, that I basically figured out a hack where if you got the principal's permission and you got them to like sign off on a letter that said this person will not be able to appear for Indian um, entrance exams to anything, yeah. <laughs> like not law, not medicine, not engineering. Um their only kind of shot is either a liberal arts college in in India or abroad. They just yeah. apply abroad. That you could essentially mix streams because the board did not distinguish. Like the board just said, have English and for other subjects. It was schools making their own lives easier. So people weren't like mixing and matching too much. And you could put people in sections. Yeah. So my school had 26 sections. It was massive. Just in my year, wow. there were a thousand kids. Um, and so imagine the logistical nightmare which would occur if people were like i'm gonna do biology and then history and you know because the whole point is like you shepherd them into a class (laughs) the teacher comes teaches and leaves and another teacher comes that's the model so you don't like leave as a class yeah yeah that's interesting yeah um it is different so then essentially i just got the permission from the psychology head of department and the physics head of department and my school principal saying this girl is weird like let her do what she wants as long as when her section is doing physics she's just going to leave the classroom go find the psychology head of department and study with her one-on-one or go find a class that was having a psychology seminar at that time and she would just go sit there. So I ended up mixing streams and now it's a thing. Apparently I heard from people who are younger than me that like now it's the norm and everyone's mixing streams. Um, But that's how it kind of came about my dad gifting me the book and me just realizing this is fascinating. Economics is traditionally very math heavy and like quantitatively rigorous and it wasn't able to predict the 2008 financial crisis. It wasn't able to predict a lot of what actually happens in the market, which is which is where psychology comes in. Like, how do people actually think and behave? Um, and how can we use those insights to remodel economic theory? What's the most surprising thing about behavioral economics? Um, it used to be people are irrational, but now everyone knows we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think for me, the most surprising is the fact that you can read up on all these biases and you can educate yourself on like, oh, this is, for instance, like the sunk cost fallacy is, you know, you've probably heard about that or the confirmation bias or there's about 120 cognitive biases, but that doesn't prevent you from falling trap, like falling into the trap. Yeah, yeah. Um, You can know about them and still still fall prey to them and still continue to be an irrational human being because that's fundamentally like who we are as social beings. Um, so that is the surprising part that you can, like, I am committing all of these errors despite having been studying them for all these years and working now in consulting, telling people how to avoid them. And I'm still like everyday planning fallacy. How many hours will it take me to complete this task? Mm, five. Turns out it takes me eight, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, it's uh, like, yeah, like, 
yeah, having studied entrepreneurship and politics, I still find myself falling into lots of mistakes all the time but with both of them. And so how was that year? Let's go back to the gap year. How was that gap year kind of taking it off? And, yeah, how did you then think, you know, because you're switching from, you know, studying some big topics there at uh, University of Yale to focusing on your kind of physical skills um, in that gap year back in India. How did you make that mindset shift? Um, I don't think I quite made the mindset shift. I just launched myself into it. Mm. And it was really hard, I have to be honest. Um, you kind of go from feeling like an imposter at a university like that, where like you're just surrounded by everyone who's a genius and so good at what they do, um, and being very academically on it, you know? Uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding pretentious. She's not a pro. Right? <laughs> it's just a literal job. I don't need to set her up like most of it, I guess. Sorry. No, <laughs> no. We used to do with businessmen. It's all good. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge mind shift. Mind shift. <laughs> it was a huge mindset shift um, because I kind of went from doing everything all at once. So um, classes five credits a semester and doing all this performing arts to then just being unemployed pretty much and being the struggling artist. Um, The thing is like, you don't know when your next job is going to come. Or in my case, it was the first one. Like I'd been locked for a song, but it took about six months to actually go and record the final version. So there was a constant like mental battle of like, have I made it? Have I not? Is that guaranteed? There's no contract that's been signed, not at that point. Um, and then you're just kind of showing up to auditions. You're just going to network, meet whoever you can, kind of expand your circle, like who's doing what type of casting, where would I fit in, going and meeting casting directors, giving them your introduction. And sometimes they give you a random scene on the spot and you just perform it. And that was kind of what I was doing. So it was very different from studying and writing papers and like solving questions to just performing yeah. or, or trying to perform. Um, and I wouldn't lie, it was really, really, really difficult. I actually also felt my brain cells dying. (laughs) Won't lie, because I suddenly then wasn't reading the news or, you know, wasn't using a part of my brain that you're used to using on a daily basis as a student. Um, Yeah. And did you, because you talked about at the beginning, you know, sort of music performing being an outlet for you. Mm. Um, And then when you were like, okay, well, I'm going to take a proper shot at this and I'm going to dedicate my life to it. Did it start becoming less fun? Hmm. Maybe in a way. Yeah, I will still say that when I'm in the studio and whenever I was still auditioning for a song, I was having the time of my life because yeah. that's genuinely my passion. And I, there's a certain like energy that comes to you when you're doing something that you love. Um, so I still had that outlet and I still, whenever I was even just auditioning without a guarantee of being in a song, was still able to... No, you, you were answering. Okay. Um, Yeah, so when I moved to Mumbai, I was going on a lot of auditions for acting and singing. And I found that whenever I was in those situations, I was still having a lot of fun. So I still found that outlet. And I was still singing at home and posting my amateur covers on my Instagram. And that was always fun. Um, But for sure, there's something different about being in a production. So I was used to performing Um, with a cost, right? And there's so much social interaction that comes about with that and preparation. And you're like doing table readings with your co-actors. 
then you're doing tech rehearsals and there's almost a month of prep that goes into a production. All of that I missed because it went from like being a social art to yeah. just being independent and thinking for yourself and going on an audition solo and performing solo and then coming home. And it was just, that was hard to deal with, especially because as I said, I didn't have all these other things filling up my time anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely uh, want to touch on the fact that this can be super isolating and that I kind of went into depression a little bit in that time because I just felt worthless. Like I didn't know if I was getting cast in anything. I didn't know if I would make it. I didn't know if the thing that had been offered to me was still on the table or yeah, I just went from like having a lot going for me to then just nothing. Yeah. Um, and then there was this weight that I definitely always put on myself of like, I am not contributing to society. I'm not earning. And like, I'm if anything, I'm relying on my parents who are helping mm -hmm. me out. And I don't know why I've always had that like internal pressure that I cannot live like that. Um, you know, if anything, I want to help my parents now and, you know, just yeah, yeah. be off support rather than take support. Um, and it's not like they were saying anything. They were just the loveliest. They're like, keep doing this. It's fine. It'll happen. We believe in you. Um, but I think I had that itch somewhere of like still wanting to do my master's because that was you know you grow up having a plan and like I spent four years at Yale having that plan and every time something didn't work out I was like hmm I could always go back I have yeah. an escape <laughs> um and then honestly COVID kind of provided that because and how but how just how did you keep going like how did you sort of when you were having those what's what's kind of like the operating system that you used to keep going with that it's just, I think, keeping your eyes on the prize and not letting anything get to you. It's just resilience, I mm -hmm. think. And it's easier said in retrospect than totally. it was while I was going through it. And to be honest, I still go through that. Like, I'm still auditioning for things and most of the times not hearing back. Um, the funniest part for me still is when I go for acting auditions and people keep calling me back to the last stage and then they say, sorry, like, oh, you just you know, last stage you didn't make it. And I'm like, can you please give me feedback? And sure, one time it has been, you just, just, you weren't good. There was someone else who was better than you. And I respected that. And I almost asked for that tape and I compared and I was like, yes, she performed it this way. That's good. I like learned something from mm -hmm. it. But 99.9% .9 of the time it was, you look like a Latina. You don't look Indian enough. We want this, this character is very Indian. And I'm like, but I am Indian. Like, I was born and raised here. Like, how how do I change my physical attributes? Yeah, you know, yeah. I was already trying to lose weight for that music video. <laughs> and that was another one. I was body shamed a lot. It was like, how can you look the way, like, how can you be this big and want to be an actress? Which is a very toxic side of the industry. Yeah. But at the same time, I understand where it comes from because you are playing a character. And if as a as a person, you mirror what the character looks like and what the director's vision is, you just make your life easier and you increase your chances of getting the, ro the role. Yeah. I realize it's more about how you look than how you perform and how much talent you have, um, which is a hard realization to have in the industry. It's, well, so I know nothing about um, acting at all or, or necessarily kind of like Indian acting. I know even less about, but what, it, is it like that at the beginning? Does it, because I always assume that it's, quite focused on looks like mm. at the beginning until you've kind of begun to make the step ups and then it becomes a bit more about the skill. Yeah, I would say the casting portion is about how you look. Once you've been cast, it's all about how you perform because yeah. the audience will judge you on, can you act? Like, have you, yeah. have you done justice to the character? Did you portray, did you carry the story pretty much, right? Um, 
so it's a lot of pressure. It's almost like you have to look perfect. You have to like perform perfectly. You just, there's no room for error. Um, but again, like, as you said, I think that's a really good point. Once you get started and then you're no longer a newcomer and you're just, you've made it and you've yeah. made a, a debut, um, I guess then you kind of have some margin of error in exploring, um, different characters and like what you're going to bring to the table and some things will just work and others won't. But I would say co the casting portion is the hardest to crack. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something about sort of, yeah, having resilience and so on. And part of it was keeping your eyes on the prize. What is the prize? Whatever your dream is. Like, but what was it for you? Getting started, to be honest. Yeah. Getting started and, and doing the best I could. Um, and I think I got really lucky with my first music video because yeah. I did eventually end up being in the video. And that was very different from what you see as industry practice, especially in India, because Bollywood is, and this is maybe something new for, for the audience watching, because it's not the same in Hollywood, yeah. but in Bollywood, the, since, since the forties, fifties, sixties, the norm is that an actor performs in the, in the video, which is traditionally in the film. So films were four hour long, yeah. four hours long. There were about four or five songs each five minutes in that time, like sixties. And the actors were just dancing and like performing the song that they had not sung. So they were just actors. Um, and that, that's where play, play, playback singer, um, as a term comes from, where you're the singer who's lending your voice. You get paid for it. And that's pretty much it. Someone else is going to come and be on the screen to your voice. Um, but m I kind of grew up with a very heavy Western influence. My training was mm. in opera, rock and pop. And I kind of grew up with like, you are the star of the show. Like you, you're the face of the video. So, you know, the triple threat concept, like at Yale, yeah. everyone I was acting with could sing, dance and act, or most people could. And that was valued and it was an asset. It like gave you an edge. Then I went to Bombay or Mumbai and people were like, so what do you want to do? Do you want to act or do you want to sing? Pick one. And I was like, what? what? Why can't I do both? Yeah. You know? And it's still like that. Like a lot of times I'm, I think there's just a lot of catching up to do, but Luckily, we're getting there with Amazon and Netflix shows where it's about an, you know, it's about a girl who sings and is, is acting in it like a star is born, Lady Gaga, that kind of a thing. Like these stories are now becoming normal and, it, and there are some actors who are now releasing their singles or singers who have now become actors in India. So I think they're charting the way for people like me yeah. who want to do it all. But I remember when I, one of these auditions that I went to was with a music director who was like, okay, now you sing as if, I'm not going to say the name, but like this Bollywood actress is on screen and her hair is flying and you just give the emotion. And I was like, hold on, why is she on screen? <laughs> I'm on screen. <laughs> and he was just like, okay, you can leave. Like you're, you're, you're not going to understand what I want. Yeah. And if you think that highly of yourself, like good luck to you. But yeah, there's, you, you deal with a lot of characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so t tell us about First Kiss and that sort of, that, sort of tipping moment that happened right yeah. because that's you know i guess that is the first prize and the prizes always change and get bigger and evolve don't they but that first prize is like well let's you know go viral let's get noticed how tell us about how that felt with first kiss um it was amazing as i said it took a long time to become um it kind of got released when i had moved to london so i just i came here september 2020 to do my masters mm -hmm. Um, after a year of kind of waiting around and not knowing when the song would come out. So we'd shot it in the summer of 2020. Okay. Yeah. Um, so lockdown, the, the COVID was a thing and we had to 
um, follow protocols for how many people can be on set, et cetera, et cetera. Got permissions to film it. Um, I was so happy when we were filming it. It was a three-day shoot, um, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah. I was not used to that. Um, but honestly, like I can do that all day, every day because it doesn't feel like a 12, 14, 16-hour day. Yeah. It, it's just so much fun for me to do that. So that was a great insight into now that after a year of auditioning and stuff, now that I'm doing it, just realizing I love it, you know? And that that's the first step. Like when I, whichever job you do, you kind of, have to have that moment of, do I like what I'm doing? And in per the performing arts, there can be a huge like weight up to getting to do it. Um, being on stage was a thrill always my entire life, but I'd never been on screen in that grand a setting before. So it was a massive realization. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm following my impulses and this is genuinely my passion. Um, so that felt amazing to like realize that after a year of, as I said, dealing with depression and just- yeah struggling a lot mentally. Um, but then I almost didn't know how big of a deal it was going to be. Yeah, There was no way of me knowing that, apart from obviously knowing I was working with such a renowned, like, you know, person who has legendary status in, in India because he brought rap. He commercialized rap in India. Yeah, um, We kind of grew up listening to his songs. So he was a huge deal. And I kind of knew what that meant as a theoretical concept, but only when the song released and blew up and I started getting messages and my Instagram was blowing up and yeah, yeah. I was out there for people to comment on and it's like, you know, just be a public figure. It was a completely like foreign territory for me. There was no way of me like coming to terms with it rather than instead of just going like the only way was go through it. Yeah. And that was amazing. However, I was a full time student when it released. I was here. A, a month into my master's degree and suddenly my classmates are like, what is going on with her? Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I like say Hannah Montana. Um, and yeah. so when, when, yeah, when was the moment, because I'm fascinated by it, particularly being in London as well. I think that's really interesting. Of like, yeah, was it waking up one morning and then seeing it, it got to kind of like half a million views or a million views? What, what was the sort of like, oh, this is, this is popping off? It was insane. We reached 30 million views in three days. Wow. Um, well, and it takes us a week to get that. Yeah, I think it was the most viewed video on YouTube within the 24 hours that it released. So it was trending on number one on YouTube charts. Yeah. And that's what I mean by like that scale and that level you can't grapple with until it's just your reality. Yeah. So it was fully like waking up. India was five and a half hours ahead time wise. Yeah. So I would be catching up to all the comments and all, all the views and all of these things. And I remember day, every day I would wake up and spend an hour like reading all the comments, reading all the messages that were coming and trying to respond to them um, yeah. and just feeling so excited um, to yeah. see something I'd put so much of like hard work into just, you know, materialize. And, and people were liking the song. People were messaging me saying, it's that earworm song. Like it's yeah, yeah, Yo Yo yeah. Honey Sing makes catchy songs. So people were like, I cannot, I have an exam and I cannot get this song out of my head. Like, please help. Um, yeah, no, it was surreal. And and how do the economics of something like that work in terms of like, are you paid a fee up front or do you get some royalties off the YouTube or how does that work? Hmm. It completely depends on the labels you're working with okay. because this is not an independent release. This went out on um, the most subscribed channel in the world, which is T-Series, the yeah. Indian music label. And I was just kind of a free writer when it came to okay. just being the artist that was being featured. So it was Yo-Yo Honey Singh's song. It was 
his music production. So essentially in music, the economics like 101 is the music product producer um, is the owner of the intellectual property of okay. the song. Um, if you have written the song, so if you're a lyricist, um, you can make some percentage of the royalty or you could be paid a flat fee. Yeah. Singers are usually paid a fat, flat fee as well. Um, so you don't own the song at all. Yeah. Um, and then the way you earn from it as a singer is when you perform in shows. So when you're right. selling out a concert, then you get to like profit from the song because it was always your voice. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit exploitative because yeah. the, the rationale you were being fed is you're the voice and people are listening to you and they're liking you and you're kind of the one becoming the star or the celeb. Um, so the money is not yours to keep unless you produce the song, which I did and I just was a singer. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, I guess, explains the model. But as the, the other thing is, as you become more and more popular, um, labels treat you better. Um, yeah. In the beginning, they want to keep the entire pie to themselves and tell you that without them, your your song wouldn't have been released or it wouldn't have reached an audience. We're talking like 249 million subscribers on YouTube. Like that kind of platform would take an entire person's lifetime, if that, yeah, to, yeah. to get to, you know, as a viewership. And what are the sort of cultural differences that you've noticed? And I'm partly asking about creative cultural differences, but also more just your sort of broader thoughts on, you know, you've spent time in the States, in the UK, and born and raised in India. Like, what are the sort of differences that you've noticed between those places? So many. Um, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> That's quite a big question. I thought that. Yeah. After I last it. Let's try and narrow it down to what are the creative cultural differences between the states the uk and india um i have found that there's a lot more rigor and structure to creative processes whether it's acting or singing in countries like the us and the uk mm -hmm. there's an art to it there's books people have read um to begin with people who want to perform professionally are getting trained like that that might be yeah. such a basic concept to you even listening to this like you want to be an actor, go to acting school, of course, right? That's not the case in India. Most actors have not been to acting school. Mm -hmm. They've been engineers or high school dropouts or like historians or, or lawyers and found their passion. And I think that comes from an underlying cultural expectation of the arts being looked down upon as an industry or as a profession, right? Like I kind of hinted at it in the beginning. There's a reason why my parents didn't want me to become an artist, which historically is linked to like a bad girl or a corrupted girl yeah. is an actor. Because if you go into this profession, there are things like casting couch and people being inappropriate with you mm. and ulterior motives and not, again, as I mentioned earlier, not, it not being about your craft, it being about what do you bring to the table. Yeah. Um, and so like in the 60s and 70s, women who acted were considered morally loose in India because their dignity was not intact. You know, it's like, yeah. you guys have seen Bridgerton, but like, that's the society I grew up in. <laughs> like that kind of, you cannot be seen talking to a guy kind of an energy. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was better for my generation. I went to a co-ed school and like, I had friends who were guys and stuff. But my mom's generation, if you were seen with a guy, then like the worst was assumed of you. Um, and so we're talking like undoing of that level, like that, that culture to now I go back and India feels a lot like the UK and the US and it's very free and... Mm. I can talk about whatever I want openly and all these like topics that were taboo are now being discussed. And I think the the pace at which India is growing is so rapid. 
every time I go back, which is every, every three or four months, I feel like I go back to a different country. Right. And people went all through the same experience, right? Which is a bit of a bonding experience, like sort of cross-culturally as well. Exactly. Um, and so you're like, you're coming back to London, you're doing the masters. So yeah, I mean, it's four years undergrad, Yale, economic psychology, year gap year chasing the prize, which then sort of comes to fruition when you're doing your masters at the LSE. What was the masters in? Behavioral science. As well, right? Yeah. So what we, what, what, Decide, what made you decide to want to do the masters? Um, so when I was at Yale, I was double majoring, and those two fields didn't have a huge overlap. Mm. Even though behavioral economics had taken off, and we had a Nobel laureate teaching at the Yale School of Management, Robert Chiller, he won a Nobel for behavioral finance, his work in behavioral finance. But I found that in the undergrad departments, the economists, professors were still heavily scrutinizing and looking down upon other social sciences, including yeah. psychology. There was almost like holier than thou attitude. We are quant, you know? Yeah, yeah. We are mathematically derived and you guys are just fuzzy, unscientific or, you know, like, yeah. A, a lot of my economist professors were just kind of like, ah, behavioral science is just whatever. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a it's wave, not, it'll yeah. come and go. Um, so I don't think people woke up to it as much in my time there. And we're talking 2015 to 2019. Yeah, yeah. This is like nudge units have been set up all over the world and like the field is advancing, but I think it took some time to catch up. However, every year I was there, like my fourth year, there was finally um, a senior seminar in behavioral economics, but that was the first time it was being offered. So 2019 was, I think, decided to be like, okay, this is, this is becoming a thing and people are interested in it and let's teach it. Uh, let's learn from, you know, even though Yale was super interdisciplinary, yeah, I don't yeah. know why I found it really hard to find classes that were teaching me a subset of both fields. Um, if it weren't for the School of Management, which is the MBA program, um, like the Graduate School for Business, basically, yeah, yeah. they were teaching a lot of behavioral science, but not undergrad. So I kind of was like, I need to specialize because I want to be in this field. Um, I'm sure I have these degrees now from my undergrad, but what do I know about the subset and what what sub area do I want to specialize in? And higher education was the right next step for that. Like you kind of do have to get a PhD yeah. um, at the very least a master's to be able to be like, okay, what sort of behavioral scientist are you? Because the field is now so wide. There's neuroscience, cognitive science, anthropologists, sociologists, public health experts, all coming into feed, data scientists coming into feed into behavioral science. So now I think the future of behavioral science is like, what is your expertise and what do what type of behavior problems can you solve? Um, and so I had to get a master's. Yeah. Um, what was what was there a particular dissertation or, or focus of the masters? Was there a topic that you were particularly studying? Yes. So there were mo core modules you had to take. Then there were electives that you yeah. dropped into, and then there was a dissertation, which was your piece of work. Um, I studied um, the impact of arts on life satisfaction. So I wanted to kind of bridge my yeah, yeah. performing arts and behavioral science passions. This is COVID-19 where everyone's life satisfaction scores, which is happiness scores, were declining. Um, they couldn't see each other. It was like a lockdown, basic life, you know, taken away from them. And I studied, yeah, the impact of pre-COVID, if people participated in the arts, whether it was through performing or consumption, um, in general like that. So it was all secondary research, uh, which means I didn't run my own experiments. I used existing data sets. Um, so the first part was in general, people who perform or consume arts have higher life satisfaction scores. And that's kind of been evidenced in the literature 
for a variety of reasons, um, you know. Yeah. Won't get into that. But the ne- the second part was like a, this, I'm getting super statistical, like nerdy here, but like a yeah, different yeah. difference and differences approach of um, since COVID lockdowns, have people who have continued to perform or engage in the arts had a buffer effect in their life satisfaction? So have they been happier than people who haven't performed or been consuming arts? And I found that, yes, that was the case. So performing arts is a buffer to mental health, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which has been like my entire life. Like I am happier as a person when I perform. Um, and yeah. now you've got a statistical rigor behind it to 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 prove it. So that's it. And do you think like that your career will forever be sort of bridging between those sort of disciplines of behavioral economics and performing arts? Um, I would like it to, but if I blow up and I'm the biggest star ever <laughs> i wouldn't have time i'm joking that's so that's so silly um i think what i'm doing they right clearly now, feed each other though, they do. But like that you you get that impression from you that you sort of that whatever you're focusing on the other is almost a release yes 100 percent. and and that was real a realization for me in that gap year when i was doing zero behavioral science or like zero academics a huge part of me felt like it was gone you know yeah. Um, so it is, I think for me as an individual, it's about figuring out what balance will I be drawing. Mm-hmm. I do think they will both be part a part of my life. Um, but right now it's maybe more behavioral science because I'm doing that full time. And music is more as and when songs come up or as and when I go to India and do more. But I can easily see um, that switching around and music is more full time. But I still dabble in behavioral science as a consultant or a contractor for the company I'm currently working for or However, like I, I think I will find an outlet for both. Yeah. Um, again, it's like I don't think I can switch one off forever. Um, it does feed in a lot as well. I think I've also relied on both because human behavior is like so applicable to anything you do. So when you're doing character work as an actor, like even pre- preparing for an audition, I can like understand what a character's motivations are based on everything I know from behavioral science. So it helps me be- become a better actor. And because I act and I have empathy for the roles that I'm performing or an actor just has to have great empathy, otherwise they wouldn't Mm. be able to like bring it to life. That helps me be a better behavioral scientist and ask the right questions and really get into people's core beliefs and attitudes and perceptions and and engage with them better. So I think it's mutually beneficial as well. So I... um... When it comes to acting, it's it's not been a discipline I've appreciated at all until recent years. <laughs> like, and now actually, like understanding the cultural sort of differences and understanding those roles, and actually speaking to actors about what they kind of go through in terms of understanding, because often playing a, an actor is understanding a, a job. Actually, right? Mm. So it all, all comes back to Jimmy's jobs, but like <laughs> it's sort of like it, it is that thing of yeah, you've got to understand the mentality of people and so on. And I think it's fascinating the research that people have to do and so on um Mel Streep who played Margaret Thatcher like went and spent a lot of time including with um my dad as well understanding what it was like working with her and and all of that and sort of really engrossing herself in it and actually when she plays it the kind of like rave reviews she gets for it are like extraordinary um and so on so it's it's one of these things that I've grown to appreciate much more. Who who are your sort of inspirations and idols that you've kind of looked up to on this journey? Yeah, there have been so many. You mentioned Meryl Streep. She went to Yale School of Drama. So oh, did she? <laughs> yeah. And there there are many others. Sometimes it was a bit scary because when you were 
um, getting like dressed, like wardrobe would come and fit you into shoes. You would like see the names of people like Meryl Streep. Like you're wearing, you're literally in yeah. her shoes. Literally, um, yeah. So obviously she is just incredible. I think I have separate ones for acting and singing, but yeah. if I were to combine and I'm just the two. Daniel <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, surprisingly and sadly, not many women in, in that field. Mm. She needs to change. Anyway, um, I think people like Beyonce and um, J-Lo. Yeah. Because they've managed to do both and set the precedent for, I, I watched J-Lo's documentary recently where she was fighting the same thing. And this is like in the 90s and early 2000s where she started off her career as a dancer and then dabble in acting and then realized she could sing really well. And there was this awakening in people in Hollywood saying, pick one or you will forever suffer. Yeah. But she's kind of just been like, you can all say what you want, but I'm still going to do both and yeah. just sit and watch. And I, I have huge respect for people who don't then like easily listen to what the society wants of you and i face this a lot in india which is like everyone wants to limit you everyone wants to put you in a box and say who because it makes it easier to answer the question who are you who, yeah. you know who are you 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 run up you're a podcaster if you tell me your 10 other things i'll probably lose interest or be like yeah sure whatever yeah, but what's your one number one label yeah yeah but people who've been able to defy that norm you know and beyonce and jaylo are like i have mad mad respect because they've been able to do it do it all what did you learn most from that JLo documentary? Um, it was really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking to see that like she's still not where she wanted to be all along. Um, and it's a constant battle of just proving yourself. And no matter what you do, you're not good enough. But at the same time, people who like you will always love you and you'll have that fan base. Um, I think what I realize more and more is to make it make a life and make a living out of performing arts you have to also have good business acumen and she's really done well with her skincare brand and her mm. beauty company and you'll see all of them do right rihanna launched fenty and um selena gomez who also did singing and acting and struggled with the same thing i've been talking about is now launched her own beauty company and i don't know there's just something about this industry where you're always under scrutiny you're never good enough and people are looking to like tear you apart no matter what you do. So that way it is, it, it's it's one of the most like difficult industries to step into. Because um, you, won't, you won't face that kind of, you know, sure, politicians maybe face a bit of that. But I think it's just being a celebrity or being in the public light. Yeah. Yes, but isn't it also just any high performing individual is never, never quite satisfied. And that's partly what separates them. Yeah, there's the intrinsic part and the extrinsic part, right? Like, sure. I don't know J-Lo personally, but in the documentary, I saw that there's so much she wants to do. Um, but then there's almost all that battle of you. If you want to do that, you produce it yourself, which which is something that was a big takeaway for me. Just even at that level, when you're a massive celebrity with like people all over the world know you and respect you still in order to perform in a movie where you want to play what you want to play, you fund it because people aren't making that. And isn't that sad? But also... <laughs> Uh, it kind of inspires you to be like, okay, let me make myself as successful where if I want to tell the stories I want to tell, I don't have to rely on other people to to build them for me. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Have you ever had any business entrepreneurship ideas? Um, not any that are good enough to share on Jimmy's jobs, <laughs> but <laughs> but I do think I will. I will definitely. I see myself going down that path as well. Okay. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Well. In the future, we'll get you back to ask you about that. 
Thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 